Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello, everybody. I'm Lou Dobbs, and this is The Great America Show. Great to have you with us. Welcome. The Marxist Dems are doing their worst, as usual, and President Trump's polling numbers keep rising. A Rasmussen poll shows President Trump beating Joe Biden by six points. The rhinos and the Marxist left all must be going nuts right now. The establishment of both parties trying to stop President Trump at any cost, circulating their talking points furiously, and it all having no effect. Here's former Attorney General Bill Barr on CBS's Face the Nation over the weekend, running with those talking points. President Trump's former Attorney General pretending that a flawed citizen, as he put it, should lose their constitutional rights. If that were the case, Barr would be zeroed out by now. Here he is. You say Trump's alleged conduct is indefensible. So many Republicans continue to defend him. What will it say if the party, your longtime party, puts him forward as their nominee? Well, that's the problem. I don't think they're actually defending his conduct, but they are saying it's unfair to prosecute him. But that then raises another question. Okay, if it's unfair to prosecute him, that's not the whole answer. The question is, should we be putting someone like this forward as the leader of the country, leader of the free world, who is engaged in this kind of conduct? The other thing is, this is not just an isolated example. Trump has, you know, has many good qualities and he accomplished some good things. But the fact of the matter is uh, he is a consummate narcissist and he constantly engages in reckless conduct that that puts uh, his political followers at risk and, and, and the conservative and Republican agenda at risk. Would he put the country at risk if he was in the White House again? He, he will always put his own interests and gratifying his own ego ahead of everything else including the country's interests. There's no question about it. This is a perfect example of that. He's like, you know, he's like a nine-year-old, a defiant nine-year-old kid who's always pushing the glass toward the edge of the table, defying his parents to stop him from doing it. It's a means of self-assertion and exerting his dominance over other people. And he's, he's a very petty individual who will always put his interests ahead of the country's, his personal gratification of his, you know, of his ego. But our country, our country can't, you know, can't be a therapy session for, you know, a troubled man like this. Bill Barr portraying himself to be a great American with great values, but Bill Barr is far from that. He is indeed very flawed. First, under Barr's leadership, American cities in 2020 burned for six straight months by Black Lives Matter and Antifa riots, all without prosecution. Under Barr's leadership, the FBI had credible evidence that President Biden was compromised by a $10 million Ukrainian bribery scheme. Under Barr's leadership, he watched presidential candidate Biden stand on a debate stage and lie to the American people, saying that his son's laptop was Russian disinformation. Barr refused to intervene even though he knew he was lying. And by refusing to intervene, Barr sided with Biden in the election. Bill Barr's FBI conspired with and exploited Twitter and other social media to censure and spy on conservative voices, 
and under Barr's leadership, he watched a rig election take place, and he lied about an investigation of that election that never took place. Obviously, Barr has the establishment's talking points, Chris Christie using the same language on CNN's State of the Union as he continued his attacks against President Trump. Republicans should listen to what he says. He's a petulant child when someone disagrees with him. And whether it's Bill Barr or John Kelly or General Mattis, whether it is Mick Mulvaney or whether it's, excuse me, General Milley, um, if you disagree with Donald Trump, the petulant child comes out and he calls you names like the ones you just mentioned and the ones I mentioned. Chris Christie was good enough, at least, to give a shout-out to his buddy, Bill Barr. And turning to foreign policy, the Biden regime overturning its China policy and the implicit U.S. policy toward Taiwan for decades. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken in China assuring dictator Xi Jinping that the United States would no longer honor its long-standing Taiwan policy. On Taiwan, I reiterated the long-standing U.S. one-China policy. Uh, that policy has not changed. It's guided by the Taiwan Relations Act, the three joint communiques, the six assurances. We do not support Taiwan independence. We remain opposed to any unilateral changes to the status quo by either side. We continue to expect the peaceful resolution of cross-strait differences. We remain committed to meeting our responsibilities under the Taiwan Relations Act, including making sure that Taiwan has the ability to defend itself. The Biden presidency looks more compromised by the Chinese than ever, doesn't it? Approving China's purchase of American farmland, building EV battery factories in the United States, selling U.S. advanced technology to China, even selling China oil from our strategic petroleum reserve. And now, Biden's Secretary of State effectively giving Xi Jinping the green light to invade Taiwan. The Taiwanese must be astonished and beyond upset by the sudden Biden reversal of U.S. support for their defense. And it was only nine months ago that President Biden assured 60 Minutes Scott Pelley that the United States would defend our longtime ally, Taiwan. What should Chinese President Xi know about your commitment to Taiwan? We agree with what we signed on to a long time ago, and that there's a one-China policy, and Taiwan makes their own judgments about their independence. We are not moving, we're not encouraging their being independent. We're not, let, that's their decision. But would U.S. forces defend the island? Yes, if in fact there was an unprecedented attack. After our interview, a White House official told us U.S. policy has not changed. Officially, the U.S. will not say whether American forces would defend Taiwan. But the commander-in-chief had a view of his own. So unlike Ukraine, to be clear, sir, U.S. forces, U.S. men and women, would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion? Yes. The Biden regime is continuing its rollback of U.S. security for our allies that began with the Obama administration when President Obama faintly at least observed the Monroe Doctrine assuring no intervention in the Western Hemisphere by any nation outside the hemisphere. To take up this confusing and concerning moment in U.S. foreign policy is professor and author Paul Bracken, Yale professor emeritus. Paul, great to have you back with us on the show. 
I'd like to start with what we just heard from the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, that the United States will no longer support the independence of Taiwan. In a very technical, legalistic, and not important sense, it's consistent with longstanding U.S. policy going back to Nixon's trip to China. Uh, But it isn't really U.S. policy because in the last few years, we've been turning the Taiwan situation into the test of American resolve for holding the free world together. So for Secretary Blinken to announce that we no longer support independence for Taiwan is is going to be a huge signal both to the allies. And I'll, I'll tell you something else. It's, it's going to be a big shock to the Pentagon because they've been running war games with think tanks and private secret war games. And they just think the Chinese are about to attack Taiwan. And then for them to get this message that it's at least politically more complicated and they can't be sure that they're going to get released to do the military things they want to do. Uh, it's going to cause a lot of friction inside the beltway. Well, friction and certainly confusion, uh, because, as you say, every yeah, bit of uh, military yeah. planning that has been going on for for years, irrespective of the administration, has been the support, military support for Taiwan. Should there be an invasion, uh, tacit, unspoken, but definitely the the stance of the United States, correct? Absolutely correct. And it's been increasing in the last few years. Uh, and the, well, the DOD has gotten this message, so they're going to be, uh, I think you chose the correct word, confused and in some sense alarmed. And they're already alarmed because of certain attributes of this administration um, that it doesn't, well, what shall we say, have its act altogether for various reasons. Well, this is uh, alarming, I think, to everyone who is focused on uh, this country's sovereignty and the defense of this country, because this throws open the South, uh, the South China Sea. It throws open, of course, Taiwan. It also means that across the Indo-Pacific, that the United States has basically exceeded uh, to uh, hegemony uh, for 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 China uh, throughout the continent, does it not? Yeah, well, that's what the Allies are certainly going to think. Uh, um, and I'm not sure it's it's hegemony. It certainly is with respect to the def- defense of Taiwan. I mean, I can imagine what's going on in Taiwan today. That must be like really pulling their hair out right now. Um, but I think it gives like China a, a much freer reign. It's a it's a almost an official acceptance of the Chinese military buildup. Um, I think it's almost a statement of that the U.S. can't do handle all of these confrontations at the same time. Let's not forget North Korea here. It may be off the news today, but you've got a lot of developments in the Middle East. You've got attempts to have a tacit agreement with Iran, and we could go on and on, uh, but there's going to be a lot of confusion, and it looks like really nobody's in charge with these things, that the administration is having to back down the rhetoric they've been talking about for the last two years. Remember the human rights emphasis, we're going to isolate Saudi Arabia? You know, where did that go? Right. 
Yeah. And where did human rights go? Uh, in China. Uh, no, no posture uh, by any administration has meant anything over the course of the past 20 years when it comes to human rights in China. Uh, it, and and in the Middle East, the same is true. It's the human rights is no longer coupled with uh, any sort of U.S. foreign policy, is it? This practical I, think, matter. I think that's right. And uh, I and I think like we have no idea how to increase human rights in in China or in, really in most countries. Um, but it's really designed to uh, appeal to the American electorate and particularly a certain kind of class of the American elite where it sells very well and gets you to think about other issues away from security, Iran getting a nuclear weapon, North Korea probably having something like 100 nuclear weapons today, and we could go on. Incredible. And there is one news development in that, and that we have uh, uh, sent out uh, one of our most advanced uh, nuclear submarines armed to the teeth uh, just because of the uh, the missile development and uh, launches by North Korea. So tensions are rising uh, in, in the area uh, for a host of reasons. And this administration seems to be utterly bereft of a a comprehensive, uh, even a not forget a comprehensive, just any kind of strategy that it can articulate whatsoever about what it will do in any region of of the world, whether it be in Europe, uh, whether it be Russia, whether it be the Middle East, whether it be Iran, uh, whether it be North Korea and China itself. Uh, the United States is flailing here. This this foreign policy team of this impaired president uh, is looks to be on about a, the same intellectual level as their commander in chief. I think that's right. And I think the real purpose of the Secretary Blinken's trip to Beijing was to get the Chinese to cool it, saying that we would cool it. We've got to lower the temperature, Blinken is saying to President Xi, um, because we don't want this thing to spin out of control because we don't know what we're doing now. If this intensifies, we're going to really be in trouble. Uh, I've long held that the real fear of the foreign policy team in this administration is a super version of the Afghan exit uh, crisis, but with China, which is a much stronger, heavily armed country, or possibly Iran or North Korea. They're backing away from crises now because they don't want to have a spectacular disaster going into an election year. And I think actually more importantly, their big fear is looking bad because they don't know how to manage these things. And so they're sending out these messages to everyone who is our enemy to cool it. And if if they believe that China Xi Jinping will respond to their their uh, their plea to cool it. Uh, I don't understand why they would think that he would listen at this point, because 
simply put, he's more bellicose than he's ever been. He is talking about a war by 2025, telling his uh, military and his nation to be prepared for the worst possible scenario. Uh, and we're watching the development uh, of his entire military uh, speed, uh, speed ahead. This is a man preparing for war, is it not? Uh, they are preparing for war. They have a huge military buildup. What people are not talking about is the enormous nuclear weapons buildup that is is underway in China. I mean, this isn't hypothetical. We have pictures of the silos being dug out. Um, and he is preparing for a much stronger China that's going to use its weight in world affairs. Um, and everyone knows, including everyone in China, that Taiwan is the number one priority for them. Now, this could be lead to a number of years in, like, I make a distinction between force and power. Force is when, let's say, a cat catches a mouse and he just eats it. That's force. Power is when the cat plays with the mouse. He drops it, lets it try to get away. And I can see China like playing with Taiwan for a number of years as a way to weaken the will of both Americans and Taiwanese to come to their defense. So there are two different options. They're both bad for the people of Taiwan and for the free world. But there are distinctions that I think are worth making. I think there are very important distinctions, and I think there is a very important analog that's being constructed for the American people if anyone does not see what is happening as a result, in part, of Biden foreign policy and the strategy employed, as you're pointing out, as Professor Bracken is pointing out, uh, about uh, the distinction between power, force, and the target. When we come back, we're going to be talking about a new target, the target for the Chinese. We'll be back with Professor Paul Bracken in just a moment. Stay with us. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
We're back with Yale University Professor Emeritus and uh, author Paul Brack. And Paul, we were talking about, you were talking about force uh, and power and the distinction and Taiwan. Let's uh, bring it to our hemisphere. And suddenly we have an administration denying that there are negotiations between Cuba and China for uh, the building of what is to be a sizable spy base uh, in uh, Cuba. Uh, your reaction, first uh, to the news, and secondly, why in the world would the administration lie about such a thing initially? Well, the Chinese are building a large intelligence facility in Cuba. Um, and the reason is they want to get close into American telecommunications traffic. We're getting close to the target is like very important. This is, this is similar to the balloon overflights of a few months ago. And the value of a balloon is that it borders over the target. So you can listen in for an hour, a couple of hours. It's harder to do that with a satellite. Um, I don't have the inside story, but I wouldn't be surprised. I, I'm sure the CIA was aware of this Chinese facility under construction. But I'm not sure the people at the top of the government even pay attention to the president's daily briefs because they think they're playing a higher level game and they understand their problem is with the media and with the American people. Um, and so it just didn't get on their radar screen. So when they were first brought to their attention, they, they said probably quite correctly that well, I didn't hear about this thing, so I guess it doesn't exist. <laughs> um, and I would ask us to think about maybe five or six more things that are not getting the attention. And like the dog not barking in the, in the uh, uh, you know, uh, story, it's, that's what we should be worried about. Um, and that could be fentanyl drugs coming in, like to the United States could be the Chinese nuclear buildup, which since it was announced, you don't really care much about anymore. But we have to ask like things of omission and things of commission. The team in Washington is making a lot of mistakes, but it's I'm more worried about what they're not even aware of. And and I happen to be one of those that perhaps I'm guilty of assuming that uh, despite the fact that they're not talking about it publicly, uh, not uh, do not appear to be engaged. I I personally I can't imagine the intelligence services being so uh, inept uh, that they are not creating contingency plans uh, with the military, of course. Uh, for uh, exigencies as they occur. Let's talk about, you mentioned fentanyl. There's been no public statement by this administration whatsoever about the death of 100,000 Americans to primarily fentanyl uh, as the Chinese work in league with the Mexican drug cartels, uh, international narco organizations, if you will. But whatever you call them, the cartels, uh, you know, terrorist organizations, they're working in league with the Chinese and killing Americans. And there's not even a statement of, uh, of threat or uh, any plan for retribution and penalty for doing so. It's, it's astounding how inert uh, this administration is. Yeah, I really, I just don't understand that. Uh, I mean, 
it's, it's not just Mexico, but it's all of Latin America, is really in problematic form right now. And in Mexico itself, you have a situation where the drug cartels, which are in bed with the Chinese as their principal suppliers, it's, it's had wide-ranging impacts, making a government which was leaning toward corruption ever more corrupt. You've turned the police, the federales, and the Mexican military into sort of agents of this process. What I'm saying is the effect of this on a net assessment point of view is to weaken the Mexican government like in any area. And that's going to bode very poorly for controlling immigration or cutting down drugs in the future. It's almost the opposite of what their declaratory policy is, which is to go to the source um, and, and create conditions so there's no need for immigration to, to cross the border. And it's almost the opposite of that, really. I don't, I mean, it's really, um, it's a very tough time for the United States. It really is. It is a tough time. And would you agree with me that the time uh, started, uh, I would say, uh, just about two and a half years ago? Um, I think the rot goes back deeper than that to previous administrations. Um, and there's a lot of culpable institutions for this um, from the government itself and how, how you get promoted the universities training people to supply system for putting people into the government. And then you have the political process itself. Um, I think it's gotten a lot worse in the last two years because it, well, for I think obvious reasons, you have a president who isn't all there. You have a foreign policy team, which is really not as strong as, you know, Republican or Democratic teams in previous administrations. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, it has gotten considerably worse in the last couple of years. Yeah, I think I would I would agree with you. It's a, it's been a longstanding uh, a series of misjudgments about how to deal with the Mexican uh, immigration drug problems that are now our problems. Uh, it has also been a, a real issue with our foreign policy in the hemisphere. Iran at this very moment is, is trying to make, uh, obviously, inroads with the Venezuelans. Uh, China is throughout Central America, uh, Venezuela as well, and and obviously Mexico. So as we look at this, there's just no response. There is no policy, no programmatic response. There is no uh, even rhetorical response uh, on the part of the administration. Meanwhile, in the Middle East, where it, it looks as though we are trying to destabilize uh, the Middle East by the effrontery of this administration when it came first to Saudi Arabia and uh, secondly with Israel, now we we understand that they're still in strong negotiations uh, with Iran uh, and moving money to Iran uh, to pursue the the Obama uh, version of an Iran deal. They're trying their best to put a nuclear weapon in the hands of Iran for crying out loud. Your reaction? Yeah, for me, the the most 
for me personally stunning revelation of the past two weeks in this incredible news cycle that we've been in is when I learned that they moved $2 billion uh, that they gave it to Tehran. Now, technically, these were loans from the United States to Iraq, but Iraq was able to transfer the money to Tehran. They clearly know what's going on because over the last 10 to 20 years, because of the terrorism threat, the institutional apparatus in Washington for economic and financial warfare has grown enormously. And we have a better sense of what's going on. So you can't tell me that we were unaware of this, that it's some technicality. This had to be known and approved at the White House. Um, I think this is something that simply is not going to fly, that whatever you think of Congress and, you know, your judgment of the stand up to something, I just don't think the idea of us giving money to a nuclear weapon-seeking Iran is going to fly. Um, and, you know, I don't, it's not the Israeli lobby that's going to block this thing. It's going to be the U.S. Congress, I think. I think it'll have to be if it's to succeed. We're talking with professor and author Paul Bracken. Uh, stay with us. We'll be right back after these quick messages, and we will take up what will be the impact of all that is happening in this cauldron of foreign policy. Uh, we're talking with Paul Bracken. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. We're back talking with Professor Paul Bracken. And Paul, I just want to turn to uh, one of your many uh, areas of expertise is in nuclear weaponry and strategic nuclear policy. We are watching this administration send off a, a arm to the teeth nuclear submarine armed to the teeth with uh, nuclear missile uh, nuclear warheads and missiles uh, we are watching in terms of uh, China uh, their support for Russia Russia moving nuclear weapons into Belarus uh, obviously they have tactical weapons uh, on their eastern Russia's eastern uh, frontier uh, not far from Ukraine yet they have at least to this point shown constraint uh, in that regard at least and now Iran this administration seems hell bent on giving uh, nuclear weapons 
uh, uh, go-ahead for nuclear weapons to Iran. How is this going to play out in this election season uh, when we have very little indication of policy except from one candidate, and that's Donald Trump, because he at least has a record? Well, from a tactical election point of view, I think we're going to see more of what they've done, which is they they call it a proximity deal. What does that mean? It's that you take certain issues that are near each other, like money we give to Iran, uh, Iran's uranium enrichment levels, which are at something like 60%. And when you go to 90%, you have bomb-grade material. And you just have a tacit agreement saying, here's the money. We're going to allow you to take this money through a, through a conduit in Iraq. Okay, you don't enrich the uranium anymore, and then we will go on television and declare that there's no connection between these two issues. That's how they're going to handle it. Now, you mentioned the submarine visit to South Korea, a U.S. nuclear weapon-carrying submarine. I'll just point out there's an interesting detail here. We have been flying B-52s and B-1s which are nuclear capable, over South Korea as a signal to the North Koreans. And I think we've concluded that it hasn't made a damn bit of difference. They continue to test these missiles. They're building a physics package to shrink the warhead. So we took really a major step by having a a U.S. nuclear submarine rise above the water and come into port I don't. I can't think of another instance where that has happened, um, because the bombers did not have nuclear weapons aboard. Trust me, the submarines do. So, but this is not coherently integrated with the other issues you're raising, like Iran. An obvious question is, where is this going? What is the long-term plan for the United States to deal with a multi-nuclear world? Um, what are we going to do? I don't even need an answer. I would just like reassurance that somebody's thinking about this seriously. Um, and I don't see that. That's frightening what you just said, to think that you, uh, of all people, can't think of someone thinking about this multi-nuclear uh, uh, polar world that uh, we are we are now in. It just depends on how how many nations end up with these weapons. To think that we don't have that kind of expertise, that kind of knowledge, that kind of forward thinking uh, in academia, we don't have it in think tanks. I, I, what in the world uh, are we doing with our universities and with our think tanks uh, and our and our federal government? Because we have such weak leadership. I'm going to say that just out loud for everybody. Our civilian leadership of this government is so weak and uh, perverse that I, I, I don't think there's any way in which they could stand up uh, to a single threat, let alone multiple. Uh, your thoughts? I find that the best thinking on this is neither in universities nor in the so-called think tanks, um, but rather in the military itself. That if you go into the Air Force, into the Navy, into the Army, and you get down like two stars, one star colonels, that's where I find the most creative 
thinking is going on where they actually accept the world that we're going into. I mean, they don't like it, but they're saying we can't change it. We better learn to live with it. Um, and that really doesn't become public all that much. If you look at the, the same thing was happening with the Australian nuclear sub-deal, it was really the Australian military that came up with this idea, not the politicians. Yeah. So, you know, after World War II, we had think tanks, like, and they sort of rose to the occasion. I think you're seeing the U.S. military, uh, some elements of the officer corps, some of their the war colleges, etc., are rising to the occasion with very bold, creative ideas uh, that are not getting the hearing that they should, that they should. Well, hearing from our Congress, uh, from our Senate, uh, our our White House, or or hearing from uh, the the senior officers, the command officers, the general staff, which is it? Where should they be I, heard first? I, I, I would say that it's, uh, you know, as I said, two-star, one-star people, maybe some support elements of the joint staff in the Pentagon, okay, another source of, of real pressure to think these things through is the Senate Armed Services Committee Nuclear Subcommittee. Because when the commanders of STRATCOM and the Navy nuclear people come in, they're really getting hard questions from these senators and their where it comes from, uh, saying, well, have you thought about this, and why haven't you thought about that? And I find at that level, there's a surprising amount of bipartisan uh, support like in the nuclear modernization. Remember, we go back 10 years, President Obama was going to eliminate nuclear weapons. He was going to abolish them around the world. Well, and look how quickly we did a 180-degree launching into the nuclear modernization that we are doing. And the reasons for that are the nuclear parts of the Air Force, the Navy, and I would say the Senate Armed Services Committee, who really were thought leaders pushing in this direction and saying, well, all this nuclear abolition stuff, that's great for a, a Yale seminar, but let's deal in the real world. The real world, though, was Barack Obama uh, insisting on clearing the way for Iran to possess nuclear weapons. Uh, the way forward was Barack Obama, as I recall, something like within a couple of years of being in office, decided to uh, just absolutely discard the Monroe Doctrine. That is a warning to all global powers outside the Western Hemisphere that the United States would respond quickly, militarily, uh, to any, any intrusion or intervention in this hemisphere. And yet here we are, uh, Russia with ships uh, moving into the Caribbean, China uh, throughout uh, South America and Central America. Uh, we are watching what has been an Obama-inspired uh, opening uh, to the world uh, that is creating, I, I think, dreaded threats, uh, awful threats uh, to the United States. Uh, we always give our guest, Paul, the, the the last word. And if you will, sir, your concluding thoughts today. We really appreciate you being with us. I've enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much, Paul. 
Yeah, it's been a nice, uh, a good conversation. My final thoughts would be uh, that things are going to get worse before they get better. That in a certain sense, chickens are coming home to roost. These trends like our support for Taiwan, our support for human rights in Saudi Arabia or Hong Kong, um, I never thought they were real. Um, and now we're, they're being exposed for the like fabrications that they were. And my hope is that this is going to bring serious attention back. What can I say? Hard military power. Um, the end, the, the, the popularity of the end of history club is rapidly declining. And we're beginning to accept a world very different than we wanted or thought was going to happen. But at least we're beginning to accept it because the contradictions we're seeing in Iran, Taiwan, the Middle East are too transparent to deny. Uh, and maybe that's uh, precisely what's required for our stilted uh, administration uh, that's been in office now for two and a half years. Perhaps it has to become so obvious uh, that uh, not even they can ignore it or mistake uh, shadows for substance. Uh, Paul Bracken, we really appreciate you being with us. And thanks, as always, for your insight, your knowledge. Uh, we, we appreciate you so much here on The Great America Show. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody, for being with us. Our quote today from President Monroe, who authored the famous doctrine, which might well apply to these moments as the Biden regime averts its eyes from China and China's intrusion in this hemisphere. Secretary Blinken might muster the courage to tell the Chinese that the United States would, quote, consider any attempt on their part to extend their system to any portion of this hemisphere as dangerous to our peace and safety, end quote. The meaning of the doctrine is plain. Assert loudly that doctrine it served America well for what will be 200 years on December 2nd of this year, and it will assure our peace and our safety, and for all our neighbors as well. Words for America to live by, don't you think? Please follow me on Truth Social and Twitter, at Lou Dobbs, that's at Lou Dobbs, and please join us on our website, lewdobbs.com. Please join us here tomorrow. Our guest will be former National Security Agency intelligence analyst Russ Tice. We hope you'll be with us. Until then, thank you, God bless you, and may God bless America.